Welcome to The Read Along, a mini book club for your ears, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. I'm your host, Scott. I'm your other host, Anita. And join us on a journey through a good book, one, one chapter, chapter at, at a time. This episode of The Read-Along is brought to you by Alberta Association of Optometrists, proudly celebrating a century of caring for Albertans. It happens one in four school-aged kids has a vision problem, yet 80% of learning is visual for a child. That's why booking family eye exams with an optometrist helps ensure learning success. You can't detect hidden eye problems, but your optometrist can. Alberta health coverage towards annual eye exams is available until your child's 19th birthday. Book your family's eye exam today at optometrists.ab.ca. I have titled my notes this week, Hot Maze Action. Uh, the maze itself is not hot. No, but getting to it, extremely hot. Yeah, uh, stiflingly hot. I mean, we've been we've been through a heat wave uh, this summer. Yes. A couple, actually. Yep. Um, and uh, it's even been kind of warm the last couple days as we move into September. Mm-hmm. Except today. Today is cold and kind of rainy. A little cooler. A nice break. Um, but uh, nothing like the heat one might experience in the middle of the desert, right. basically. Yeah. Reading all of Nick's descriptions of just how hot it is, and, and I'm like, I could never. I, I wouldn't. I, there's no way. I yeah. would I would get out of the vehicle and immediately expire. Just like pass out. I, I would pass out. I would combust. I would melt something. <laughs> something horrible would happen to me and I, I would not be able to continue. Yeah, Anita is a creature acclimatized to the cooler temperate temperatures of uh, middle Alberta. Yes. And so <laughs> uh, like on those rare occasions where we have gone to hot and uh, tropical locales, Ugh. she is not handled it super well humidity is not my friend at any temperature i am just not made for moist areas well before we really get into uh this chapter let's do a a brief recap of our previous chapter in which our heroes start in media res in a plane ride that does not go well uh (laughs) it is being attacked by glowy blobs they crash make an escape into the city where they are able to pick up the supplies they need for the final push nick is reminded of a funeral where he learned a little bit more about his friend and they steal a car to drive into the desert, which is where we find ourselves in chapter 23 of Beneath the Rising by Premi Muhammad. So Nick is a nervous wreck as they leave the city and head for Nineveh. Well, he's a good kid who just stole a car. Like, he's concerned that they're going to be caught any second. Oh, yeah. Even when they're... And and the fact that they get on the highway and it's largely empty does not in any way abate his nervousness. They are truly alone in the middle of nowhere, and he is still concerned that suddenly police are going to spring out of the nothing and arrest them, and everything is going to be horrible. He's also legit perplexed that there's so little traffic, like, going away from the site. Because he'd expect people to be fleeing from the coming disaster. But he's so focused on the coming disaster, I think he's lost perspective that not many people are aware of it. Right. And certainly don't know where it's going to be coming from. Your your average human being has not put two and two together in the same way that Johnny has. Yeah. Right? So 
yeah, there's not widespread panic. No, he, like, really. and again, I, I think because he's so focused on it, he's kind of lost the perspective. That said, it is also a slight clue, a minor clue to what they discover when they get to the site, which is that it's abandoned. Uh, yeah, abandoned and shut down because of, what did they say, wildlife? Yeah, we'll, we'll touch on that as we get a little later into the Oh, chapter. yeah, we'll get there. Nick takes the opportunity of the drive to ask after some pulp horror authors, such as H.P. Lovecraft, who apparently did exist in this universe and still wrote his books, actually. Yeah. This is actually not an uncommon conceit that I've seen crop up in other cosmic horror that is descended from Lovecraft's. That they mention Lovecraft and his works that exist, and it turns out that he was right and not making it up all along? Yeah. Okay. And I mean, this, this risks dipping into the Lovecraft box here. Maybe we'll open it fully. There's I don't know. Nothing wrong with the Lovecraft box. Yeah, it's it's actually a fairly common trope to say Lovecraft did exist, did write his stories, and was warning humanity about horrors that he could perceive that we weren't, or was kind of in the know, or maybe was spreading dangerous misinformation, but that he is in-universe a person who is still doing his thing. It's just that he was not making it up. Yes. He was correct, or close enough to correct. Right. And in this case, Premi Muhammad is suggesting that he was in the know because he was a member of the Sarati Society. Aha! Uh, that's what Johnny pretty much outright says. Um, and he was carefully disseminating information to kind of raise public awareness of the possibility of these evils without necessarily blowing it wide open and being mistaken for a crazy person. Right. Which, I mean, it would have been easy to mistake Lovecraft for a crazy person. <laughs> Agreed. I liked the part where she was like, well, you know, he changed the words around and made up a language for the spells because you can't just put spells in popular fiction and yeah. publish them for people to say. Yeah, that would be a bad thing. Johnny's less worried about that, though, because her mind is fixated on the fact that even with the uh, protections that she's erected uh, around herself and uh, around their journey and indeed on their car at this yeah, she juncture. Wrote, she drew something on the glove box and made it glow blue. <laughs> that amused me. The powers that be, the ancient ones, them, they should know exactly what Johnny and Nick are up to at this juncture. Yeah, they may not know exactly where our pair are. They should know where they're going. But yeah, they should definitely know where they're going. So Johnny and Nick both agree they're probably walking into some kind of ambush or some kind of trap. Nick notices around this time that Johnny's not being glowy while discussing this and asks if this is the real her now. And Johnny's obviously pained by that question. Yeah, because he's implying that she's not really herself when she's clicking into prodigy mode. Yeah, and she's like, no, I'm, I'm always me. She kind of words it this way. She says, you know what? Put out of your mind whatever you think I'm like when I'm using my prodigy mode. Just remember me as I am right now because that is what I am. I'm your friend. Yes. And he's unable to really answer that because he's like, you say that, but I know when we get where we're going, one or both of us is going to die trying to stop this catastrophe. And if one of us dies, it's going to be me because you're going to, you are going to be willing to sacrifice me in a way that I'm not willing to sacrifice you. I had a problem reading that because, again, the tone of that whole sentiment mm -hmm. is, again, just feels like Nick being down on himself and assuming that he is useless. It's it's this thing that he just inherently knows, right? I don't know that they've ever actually 
talked about it. No, they haven't. He is very much assuming. Yeah, he's just making these grand assumptions. He, he is making an informed assumption because he does know Johnny. Yes, informed, but I would argue tainted. Very much so. Especially tainted by the last couple weeks. Yes. Of being in close proximity under extreme stress. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. So they arrive at the site, and as Anita mentioned in the preamble of this episode, <laughs> the heat is unbearable. Yeah, like they open the door, and he describes it like walking into a light post. Yeah, it's or like something like that. Just you can clang. almost hear like the the airlock pressure of the air conditioning in the car releasing into right? the and just into being the hot. like punched in the face with like, just stifling heat. Yeah, uh, Johnny actually has a straight moment of panic. Like she collapses and is like, "Oh God, I did not adequately prepare for this. We don't have enough water. We're gonna die out here before we ever find what we're looking for." And <laughs> I'm not Nick, equipped to dig in this kind of heat. Yeah, and Nick actually has to pep talk her <laughs> into getting back on her feet and focusing back up by, on it by threatening to embarrass her on the internet. Yeah, like a good friend. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, but it it does cheer her up, and it does get her to kind of rally. And fortify herself and and get moving again. And after a thorough sunscreening uh, and covering up, they set to work. Now, it's around this time that Nick does note the dig site is empty and the door has been essentially left wide open, which is super sus. Right. But he does not pick up on that in the moment. Um, in fact, neither of them really pick up on it in the moment. We're going we're gonna to come back to this. Yeah. Um, he also spots fresh holes that look less like part of an excavation and more like something dug itself out. Yeah, more like digging from the bottom instead of from the top. And they then see the sign a little later that says this site has been indefinitely closed due to wildlife attacks. And Nick's like, what kind of wildlife would be around here? And Johnny's like, we're in the middle of the desert. There shouldn't be anything that is particularly threatening to there humans. Is, there is not here but sand and stone. In, pretty much, yeah. Mm. And while this does kind of trigger some alarm bells for them, it, it certainly doesn't trigger the right kind of alarm bells. It was it was triggering my alarm bells. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I would not step foot on this site for many reasons. Johnny leads them away from the main dig site because obviously where, where the main dig is happening is not what they're looking for. They also have to take a, a bit of a, a break because Johnny's asthma has started to crop up again. Yeah. Well, uh, she's in the middle of a desert, like yeah. swirling sand, all that, not... Not super conducive to easy breathing. And she's insisting, like, my asthma cleared up years ago. I didn't think I'd need my inhaler. And Nick's like, it's fine. We'll, we'll take a quick breather. It's okay. Also, extreme circumstances. Yeah. They press onward in the heat. Johnny trying to locate this ancient king's burial chamber. And she's being stymied by basically a riddle that the stones are presenting her with as she begins to to find kind of like the the markers she's looking for. Yeah, they, they sort of crisscross and zigzag and loop around and double check and she's making notes and doing translations and they're kind of darting all over the place putting this all together right? yeah so so johnny kind of relates to us a little history here apparently and we already knew the site had been guarded by a sorceress and her apprentices yes. her, her acolytes ages and ages ago yeah she went by several different names it could have been a different person but johnny's pretty sure it was the same person going by different names and Johnny waves this off as unimportant trivia in the moment. Um, what she does know for sure is the sorceress wanted to hide the king's tomb because she was loyal to him. She says love, but not in that way. And, yeah. and But clearly she wanted to protect the king's tomb from robbers, from people who might try to misuse what was there. But knew, on the other hand, that the gate might someday be important and useful because she had fought them. Yeah. 
So she didn't want to make it impossible. Just difficult. But she had to make it difficult. Yeah, she yes. wanted to stymie people who would be who wouldn't be super motivated to find it, uh, but leave a trail of clues for the people who might be very motivated to find it. Yes. And luckily in this case, Johnny is amongst those who's very motivated. Johnny determines she needs to find a statue, but the statue might be gone. Indeed, there's evidence to suggest it is. So she needs to find the shrine that the statue was close to. They locate it after about an hour of searching and an hour of digging as well. Yeah, which isn't that bad. Not really. Mm. Uh, they excavate an entrance that looks a lot like a mouth to Nick, and he cannot unsee it once he sees no. it. No, yeah, the whole archway full of teeth, and he's like, mm-mm. Uh, and they enter into the shrine. As they go into kind of like the, the first chamber, they spot a number of very creepy looking statues. Oh, yeah. That uh, neither of them quite like. And and while Nick is shining around his flashlight, he finds some like corners where the light just doesn't seem to penetrate the darkness. Yeah, where the light just doesn't touch anything. Yeah. And he quickly begins to sense that these spots of darkness are kind of like moving or following them. And when he points them out to Johnny, Johnny looks scared and is just like, we should ignore those and carry on. Right. That's a that's a red flag. Yeah. Johnny relates that the king had made a deal with a traveler from, quote, the West, who introduced him to, quote, new gods. And these gods gave him power and wealth in exchange for what gods usually ask for, sacrifices. Mm. But as the years progressed, the demands grew for more and more sacrifices, basically. Yeah. And finally, it was the, the king's prince who cast down the temples to these new gods. And in return, the new gods smote them. <laughs> yes, as gods do. As gods do. Um, and that's why the city was destroyed, basically. Now, the place is a labyrinth, and Nick quickly notes that it's impossibly larger on the inside than it is on the outside. I noticed that right away, too. I was like, this this place is just this crazy labyrinth of elaborate rooms. Like, how does it fit where it's, it is? It's hyperspace geometry. It uh, It does fit in the space because the space itself has been made impossibly large. Yeah. This is pretty... Standard uh, impossible angles and architecture. I legit wrote the words impossibly large in my notes. Yeah. Um, well, as I say, uh, alien geometries are a common part of cosmicism. Yes. Like Cthulhu lives in a city at the bottom of the sea, which sank long ago, which is made up of architecture that should not work. And that's kind of the case here. It's, it's again, it's hyperspace geometry. Yeah, it's, it's uh, very Lovecraftian. They start trying to make their way through and it's not going well. <laughs> the search does not go well. They're quickly finding themselves being led in circles and doubling back on themselves. And Nick notes to his growing horror that uh, their footprints are being obscured by other footprints as yeah, they go. That's unsettling. <laughs> yeah. He's also hearing the occasional noise behind them. Um, some, some suspicious sounds scrabbling through the dark and, He's willing himself to continue to ignore them, as Johnny suggested. But finally, he does steal a glance back at one point and doesn't see anything, but knows on a deep instinctual level there is something there. Johnny notes at this point some of their servants are invisible. That would have been helpful information earlier, Johnny. Well, hunting horrors are from the Lovecraftian mythos. Uh, they are invisible monsters that are sent out to kill things. Alhazred, the the uh, mad poet who wrote the original Alazif, upon which the Necronomicon is based, famously was ripped apart by an invisible monster in the middle of a busy town square. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that it happens. <laughs> 
Nick jokes that he'd rather that uh, maybe a bounty hunter had followed them into the into the labyrinth and was hunting them right now. Yeah, he makes a Boba Fett joke. But Johnny actually counters that if they're gobbled up by monsters, at least she won't have to pay out the reward money. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's better than, than being a bounty hunter. Because she is paying her own bounty. Uh, they have determined. Right? Yeah. yeah. So it might actually be better if they were gobbled up by monsters. <laughs> Save her some money. Yeah, the tension does not break based on this uh, on this little banter between them, though. No. Uh, it does not ease either of them, and it continues to mount as, as they realize they're not getting anywhere. <laughs> but it was a valiant attempt. Johnny, at this juncture, decides they're going to need to use some magic to call for help. Yeah. So she sets herself down in a chamber that they come across and lays out another magic circle and kind of invokes one of the the ancient elder gods uh, in an effort to get its assistance to uh, find their way through the labyrinth, basically, for navigation. And at first it doesn't seem to work, but she, like, invests some more magic points in it, and it clearly takes a toll on her. And finally, like, a glowy rune appears on her hand, and she seems to have uh, attained the assistance that she requires. Yeah, like a weird magic compass something something. Yeah, she says she's not going to be able to maintain it for super long, but if they hurry, it might take them where they need to go. And that pretty much wraps up chapter 23. Yes. Johnny turns herself into a magic compass. Now, um, I had mentioned before that there are some red flags uh, all over the place here. The fact that the place is conveniently abandoned, the fact that the people who were there before were clearly driven off by monsters that Mm -hmm. mysteriously aren't around, that the front gate has been left wide open, that they are being followed in the labyrinth, but never attacked in the labyrinth. It's almost like they're being kind of pushed deeper into the labyrinth, if anything. This is not an ambush. This is, like, if... They want to stop them from closing the gate, and they know where they're going at this juncture. You'd think they'd throw everything they have at them. There'd be swarms of monsters, like attacked Nick's house. Drazenoth would be there directing puppets. Uh, They would have turned as many of the, the people working at the camp into zombies. Like, you'd think there would be a small army waiting to stop them but there's nothing and it's eerily quiet there's not even any mortal authorities there to impede their search and the door has been left wide open and that is very suspicious in a way that neither of them clue into they they recognize there's danger but they don't recognize that they're being drawn in well here's the thing i think they do recognize the danger and i think they ignore it and go forth Anyway, because Johnny is convinced that this is where she needs to be. It is. Yes. She she outright calls it a trap early on while they're in the car. She does a bad Admiral Akbar impression, calling it a trap. They know what they're heading into and they do it anyway. Well, because she thinks she's making the informed decision to walk into the trap, knowing that it's a trap, but partly because they need to go through the trap to get where they're going. It's a calculated risk in this case. Like, we need to walk into the fortress because the fortress is where the MacGuffin is. The problem is, I'm beginning to lean more on what what had been, like, random, irresponsible speculation last chapter, which I had thrown out in the, the heat of the moment while we were recording, that what if this is a bluff? Yeah, what if it's not so much a trap as a diversion? Yeah, and what if the door has been thrown wide open suspiciously so because they're exactly where the powers that be want them to be, which is as far away from the actual problem as possible. Yeah. This entire chapter did not abate that. It only gave more fuel to that fire. That they are walking into a trap, but it's not the trap they think they're walking into. Right. 
they're walking into a trap that's meant to keep them away from the real problem. They're not walking into a trap that's meant to stop them from reaching their goal. Because yes. their goal is the diversion. Right. Again, it's it's the it's the robed monster in the window going, look at me over here. I'm opening the window. <laughs> I'm where, a diversion. Well, everybody's sneaking into the party through the crack. Yeah. Yeah. After I had finished reading the chapter last night, uh, Scott and I briefly, briefly talked about it. And he brought up this this exact argument about how he thinks it's a, a diversion and less of a an ambush slash trap. And your theory, if I remember correctly, is that the real problem is back home. Well, that the real problem is that there is a crack in the fa- in the in the fundament yes. of of the cosmos and that uh, that's where the real push is going to happen. It was actually and this is crediting Ron, one of our listeners. Shout out Ron. Um he he posited that the crack was left back home, which is as far away from them right now as it can possibly be practically. And that when zero hour hits, Edmonton is going to be the epicenter, not the gate that they're at halfway across the world. Right. It's back at Johnny's house where she created the impossible box. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think that's very smart. Yeah. I, I like that theory. I don't know if it's right, but the argument for it is pretty sound. Because why wouldn't you want to lure them as far away as possible from the actual problem by spinning an elaborate web of deceit? The problem is we only have so many chapters left to give ourselves a happy ending. Oh, no, Nita, I've said <laughs> chapters ago, I do not see this book having a, this horror novel having a, having a happy ending. Happy ending? Uh, this horror novel that is the first in a series <laughs> having a happy ending. I, I would like to point out, though, happy ending or no, having the climax happen on the other side of the world from the protagonists is very anticlimactic for us, the readers, who are with the protagonist. I disagree. All right. And I disagree for this reason. Is the climax of the story the end of the world or the confrontation between Nick and Johnny? Ooh. And those are two distinctly different things. You are very and correct. What, and what better thing to motivate that confrontation than Johnny having been wrong this whole time and the end of the world starting way over there? Ooh. That would call everything into question and could create the situation that causes that climax. Because again, I don't think the climax is the end of the world. I think the climax is Johnny and Nick finally having it out. The fight that you've been waiting for all book. Oh, I really have. That's that's the cathartic climax that we're building to. It's it not them saving the world. It's them having it out with each other. So you think this book is going to end with the end of the world? After a very satisfactory fight. Or at least the beginning of the end. I mean, people always assume that the end of the world is going to be an instantaneous and explosive thing, which might look very good in movies, (laughs) but in reality might be a slow burn. It might become an uh, an impossible to stop, but slow transition. Mm. We don't know. Interesting. Alien monsters don't need to come spilling forth and destroy all of humanity overnight. Alien monsters can spill forth and exert dominance or slowly begin <laughs> consuming the world. Take their time. Yeah. Enjoy devouring humanity. Really savor it. Well, I mean, we are savory. <laughs> so you, you we do are want, made of meat. You do want to, like, enjoy that. Yeah. It's a slow meal. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a fancy meal. Yeah. That you want to take your time with. Yeah. Because if you eat it really quickly, it's over really fast. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't, you don't really enjoy it. Exactly. You don't, yeah, slow down. Okay. 
At any rate, that that ends chapter 23. Uh, next up will be chapter 24. You're going to want to read up on that in time for next week. Uh, in the meantime, you know, the world could end tomorrow, but probably it won't. And either way, uh, you might want to invest into your community today uh, so that if the worst comes to happen, you have a strong community to look forward to to help get you through the worst of times. And what better way to invest in your community than with endowment funds? The Edmonton Community Foundation is an organization here in Edmonton that helps people, regular people, put together the funds they need to be able to support local charities and initiatives. And uh, likely, wherever you are listening, there are similar organizations uh, in your community as well. Here in Edmonton, the Edmonton Community Foundation has a podcast that talks about how it helps people, and that might give you an idea of how you might be able to help people in turn. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. I'm Andrew Paul. And we're the hosts of the Well Endowed Podcast. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation, or ECF as we call it. ECF provides grants to charities through the endowment funds we create and manage with our donors. Hence the title of our show, The Well Endowed Podcast. Every month, we bring you a collection of stories and interviews with fascinating guests who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. Through these stories, we look at the space where endowments intersect with your communities. So if you're interested in the people and issues impacting your community, check out the wellendowedpodcast.com. Well Endowed Podcast. It's just a good name. Yeah. Uh, you can find out more about them, of course, at the Alberta Podcast Network website, albertapodcastnetwork.com. While you're there, you'll find many other wonderful award-winning yes. podcasts. And uh, you can probably download those podcasts right now on your podcatcher of choice. Yes, probably. While you're there, uh, be sure to give us a little rating and review because that definitely helps boost up us in the uh, in the podcast that's, rankings. That's a nice little thing. Yeah, you can also reach out to us on social media like Ron did earlier this episode. Got a total shout out for his theory. Woohoo! Uh, yeah, we are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Goodreads. You can find us in any of those places. We are at the read along on most of them. We're also available via email. Yes, we are the read along at gmail.com. And with that said, as always, we love you very much, and we'll see you next time. I hope the darkness doesn't. Thank you for joining us on The Read Along with your hosts, Anita and Scott Bourgeois, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. All Read Along music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Cover art is by Aaron Beaver. Be sure to join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Read Along, and check out our group on Goodreads.com.